It was many years after that resurrection morning that the Apostle John was all by himself on an island in the Mediterranean called Patmos. He had served his Lord Jesus Christ faithfully for now some 60 years after he had last seen Christ. The Emperor Domitian was intent upon snuffing out Christianity in the Roman Empire. And in order to try to achieve that end, he sent the last of the apostles, John, in exile to an island. And there it was on a Sunday, on a Lord's Day, that John was meditating upon these things. And suddenly he heard a voice. It sounded like a trumpet to him. He turned around to see who it was that was speaking. And there he saw the most majestic person he had ever seen. And this person said to him, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. He had not recognized the visage of his Savior. So majestic, so changed was Jesus as he appeared to him on that island. But Jesus identified himself quickly as the one who was dead but who was now alive forevermore. John may have been meditating upon the despair that he had experienced with the disciples those three days after the crucifixion. Recently I was reading a book entitled Across China by Peter Jenkins. Maybe some of you have read it. Jenkins recounts the story in the book of a young man whose name was Chris. Chris was in his mid-twenties, five foot ten inches tall, handsome, sandy, blonde hair, intelligent, muscular. He was a mountain climber. His father was a teacher at MIT. But Chris wanted to be a mountain climber, and so he got practice doing that and was excellent. In fact, he was a guide. He was so good. On one occasion, a man from Seattle by the name of Jim, who was an attorney in his mid-40s, wanted to go on an expedition. And in order to give him some experience, uh, he paired up with Chris for a journey up Mount McKinley in Alaska. The two of them went alone. They took along about 200 pounds of equipment and food, placed it on a plastic sled in between the two of them, and they began going up the side of the mountain that way with a rope 10 feet long on the front of the sled attached to Chris as he led the way, and a rope 10 feet long on the back of the sled attached to Jim as he followed. As they approached a particular pass, they were crossing a glacier. And those who do this sort of thing know that one of the dangers of a glacier is a crevasse, a place where the ice has split. 
But often that crevasse is hidden because snow has blown over it. Well, they could see many of the crevasses because the snow was dipped where they were. Jim later couldn't remember exactly what happened, but suddenly Chris disappeared in front of him, and the first thing he knew, he was being pulled down. Chris had slipped into a crevasse that was entirely hidden. It was three feet wide at the top, and then it narrowed down to 18 inches at the bottom, 25 feet down. Chris fell head first. And on top of him came the 200-pound sled, and after that came Jim. As soon as he could regain his senses, Jim took off the snowshoes he was wearing as best he could in 18 inches of space where he was wedged. Chris was able to talk to him, but he couldn't see Chris's head, couldn't see his upper torso, only his legs were visible in the, the sled and all the materials scattered around them in that narrow crevasse. Jim quickly realized that his left arm was useless. It was broken. His shoulder was broken. He had only one good arm. He reached over to try to pull up Chris and could not even begin to budge him. And so he took a rope out of the pack that he was carrying and tied it to Chris and then he began to climb up the side of the crevasse. It took him an hour to get to the top. Once up there, he began to try to pull straight up to try to lift Chris out of the point where he was wedged helplessly in the bottom. He couldn't budge him. He climbed back down into the crevasse did everything that he knew over a period of some six or eight hours to try to free his friend who was still lucid, who could talk to him. But nothing could free him from where he had been smashed into the bottom of the crevasse. Later Jim wrote in his diary that it was about 9.30 that night that he and Chris both realized the inevitable. That Chris was hopelessly trapped head first at the bottom of that crevasse. And Jim was now too exhausted to help him. And only with great exertion was he able once more to climb to the top of the crevasse himself. And he laid there totally drained of his strength. It was about three hours before Chris, at the bottom of the crevasse, finally died. Can you imagine the despair and the horror that that young man must have faced as he died there upside down, trapped in the bottom of an ice crevasse where he is entombed still today. Talk about hopelessness. It must have been something like that the night after the crucifixion. 
Most of the disciples had either run or watched from afar. John was close enough that he was at the cross with Mary. And she understood what Simeon had meant when they dedicated Jesus, and he told her that a sword would pierce her own soul. For as she watched her firstborn being crucified, there was a sword of pain and agony in her heart. And finally, he died. It was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who came later, having received permission to take the body of Jesus down from the cross. Often the bodies were allowed to hang there for days as a reminder to everyone what these criminals had done. But in this case, the Passover was upon them, and the Jews wanted the bodies down too. So these two men, who had been secret followers of Jesus, took his body down, and they put it into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And there they rolled the stone shut. What hopelessness and despair there must have been in the hearts of the disciples. How empty they must have felt. They had come to believe in Jesus of Nazareth. They actually believed that he was going to bring the kingdom. They had given up years of their lives. They had set aside their livelihoods. Some were fishermen, others were tax collectors or other occupations. But they laid all of that aside to follow him. And now he is dead and in a tomb. And they and some of the other followers are huddled in fear, in despair, and hopelessness. A couple of days later, on the first day of the week, two of them had left Jerusalem early and were walking toward their home. And they said to a stranger who happened to accompany them, on part of the journey to their homes. We had hoped that it was he who would bring the kingdom to Israel. You see, in the way they said that, we had hoped, but now they were without hope. Back in Jerusalem, as the morning began to dawn on that first day of the week, Some of the women were bringing spices to finish the burial of Jesus of Nazareth. When they got to the tomb, they found that it was disturbed. And they received, some of them, announcement from angels. He is not here. He has risen from the dead. And one of them, Mary, who lingered behind for a while, actually heard his voice and turned and saw him and touched him. And suddenly... The despair and the hopelessness turned to great joy and celebration as it slowly began to dawn upon them that, in fact, he was risen from the dead. And joy filled their hearts. And joy changed their lives as they understood and realized that this one that they had loved and known in the flesh And who had died was now alive, as he said himself, forevermore. And they ate with him, and they met with him, 
and they conversed with him on numerous occasions over the next 40 days or so until that day that they met with him on the Mount of Olives. And while he was speaking to them, he was taken up out of their sight into heaven. And they became flaming evangelists of this message of the risen Christ as the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled their lives. We live in a world that is in despair. It is hopelessly trapped in a crevasse of sin. And wickedness and rebellion against God. And because of that crevasse, there's absolutely no hope for the world. And those who are in the world are without God and without hope. We live in the most technological society in the history of the world. We can pretty much do what we want to do and go where we want to go. We have time in our hands. We can fulfill most of the pleasures that we desire. Isn't it amazing that in a world like ours, suicide is one of the leading killers of our young people. They choose to end their own lives. Isn't it amazing? That those companies that manufacture drugs that deal with depression can hardly keep up with their business. We live in a despairing world because it is a world without any hope. One of the great men of this century was Winston Churchill. Near his death, Winston Churchill, the former Prime Minister of England, had these words to say, I am an old man. I have lived a long time. I have never seen days like these. I am tired of it all. I see no hope for the future. Our problems are beyond us. The French philosopher and novelist Jean-Paul Sartre said, Man can count on no one but himself. He is alone, abandoned on earth in the midst of his infinite responsibilities without hope, with no other aim than the one he sets for himself, with no other destiny than the one he forges for himself on this earth. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I, who have faith in Jesus Christ are a people distinct in this world. Because we have come on this morning to celebrate hope that lives in our hearts. We are distinct because we live in a world that is without hope because it is without God. But in His grace and goodness, God has revealed himself to us and has opened our hearts to see the truth that is in Jesus Christ 
And many of us have come to the place where we have placed our personal faith in Jesus Christ. And receiving him as our Lord, we are walking with him. We are a people distinct in this world because we are a people of a living hope. May I remind you of Peter's words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is possible for you and me to pass through trials in this life in which we may even come to the point of despair. Circumstances may fall into our lives in which we feel trapped and we feel hopeless. But let us remember that those feelings are lies. That in Jesus Christ there is a living and eternal and a sure hope. And if you as a child of God have come to this service this morning, on this Easter morning, and you feel a certain despair and a certain hopelessness that has attached itself to your life because of your circumstances, whatever they be, let me tell you that your feelings are lying to you. That on this Easter Sunday there is greater hope than you can possibly absorb if your faith is in Christ. There is a hope that will lift you from the circumstances and the despair that you may feel inside now, and which will set you on a solid plane, a solid path for the rest of your life. The secret to knowing and experiencing and feeling that hope is yielding to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life today. Today. It may be that you have come to this service as a religious person who's never placed personal faith in Jesus Christ. You've grown up in our culture with the story of Good Friday and Easter, and you know something about it, but there hasn't been that personal relationship with God established in your life, a relationship that is established by faith. Would you do that today? By turning from your sins and to the Savior? And say to him who died for you and rose again, Jesus Christ, living one, living God, come into my life and deliver me from my sin and from my despair and my hopelessness and fill me with your salvation and your hope. Oh, friend, he will do that. And he will impart to you a living hope a living hope that is reserved in heaven for you and which nothing can ever take away. Let's pray together. Our heads bowed, our eyes closed. In a moment we're going to sing again of the joy of the resurrection. But before we sing, in just a moment, has the Spirit of God on this Easter Sunday done something in your heart Perhaps there's someone here who would say, Today, on this Easter of 1991, I am trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have known about Him before, but today I'm trusting Him. 
And I am inviting him, I am receiving him into my life as my Lord and my Savior, as an act of faith. If that is your choice and your decision today, would you indicate that by your uplifted hand just where you're seated? Let that be an act of faith on your part by the uplifted hand saying, Today I am trusting him as my Lord. I want his living hope. What about those who are here who have trusted him but who have been living in despair? Would you say to him, Lord Jesus, be my hope today? I feel hopeless. I feel trapped. I feel like I can't get out of this crevasse into which I've fallen. But I know that you have conquered even death, that you are my hope. And I reestablish your right to rule in my life. And I yield myself afresh on this Easter to your lordship in my life. If that is your decision, would you raise your hand and say that to him? God bless you. Anyone else? Yes, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life, risen from the dead. Let him live his life in me. Father, thank you for the truth of the resurrection. And may this glorious truth lift our hearts. And as we depart from here in a few moments, may it lift us in praise and worship to you. So that as we go out from here, we go out with Jesus as the Lord of our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.